Hi, Coke Scholar family and friends. Welcome to The Sip, the podcast that shares a taste of how Coke Scholars around the world are igniting positive change. This season features amazing panels of scholar experts discussing interesting and timely topics. My name is Aisha Shebby, and I'm excited to lead you through this season. I'm a proud 2020 Coke Scholar, originally from Miami, Florida, and now a junior at Princeton University studying medical anthropology. I also have my own podcast called The Hybrid Podcast. For those who are listening and may not be a Coca-Cola scholar, welcome. We're so glad you're here. To give you a little background, the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation is the largest achievement-based and corporate-sponsored scholarship program in the country. Each year, it awards $20,000 to 150 high school seniors across the country who share a unique passion for service and leadership. There are now over 6,000 Coke Scholars creating positive change around the world. If you want to learn more, you can visit their website, coca-colascholarsfoundation.org. In our fourth episode of this season, Coke Scholars Dr. Robert Accordino, Diana Chow, Chris Bean, and Dr. Nina Vassen will share their stories and experiences surrounding mental health and how to create safe spaces to have these important conversations. Now, let's learn a little about Robert, Diana, Chris, and Nina. Dr. Robert Acordino, a 1999 Koch Scholar, is a physician executive and passionate champion of mental health parity. He is currently the Chief Medical Officer at OnTrack Health and previously served as the Chief Mental Health Officer of Quartet Health. In 2007, as a first-year medical student, he founded the nonprofit organization Music for Autism, serving as executive director and leading the charity's fully subsidized program's national expansion. Diana Chow, a 2016 scholar, first-generation Chinese-American immigrant, and recent graduate of Princeton University, founded Letters to Strangers when she was in high school after bipolar disorder nearly ended her life. Today, Letters to Strangers is the largest global youth-for-youth youth mental health nonprofit, impacting over 35,000 people every year on six continents and publishing the world's first youth-for-youth youth mental health guidebook for free. Chris Bean, a 2014 scholar, is a storyteller by nature, advertiser by trade, and PR enthusiast by preference. Chris pioneered the Ithaca Homeless Crisis Campaign that raised funds to equip the city with life-saving resources and recruited and trained volunteers to provide ongoing help. He's championed causes connected to mental health awareness and advocacy and is working on releasing a book called Raging Seas and Rising Suns. Leading the conversation is Dr. Nina Vassen, a 2002 Koch scholar who is a psychiatrist, entrepreneur, and pioneer in digital mental health innovation. Nina is the Chief Medical Officer at Real, a mental health care company building a new therapy model. She has worked as a healthcare advisor to the UN and co-authored the number one Amazon best-selling book, Do Good Well, Your Guide to Leadership, Action, and Social Innovation with fellow Koch scholar Mackenzie Lowry. And now, here's Robert, Diana, Chris, and Nina. Welcome everyone to the Scholars Ignite podcast, and our topic for today is mental health. Now, if we rewind two years, we were already in the midst of a mental health crisis. Across the world, depression has been one of the biggest problems worldwide. Here in the United States, drug overdoses are the leading cause of death for American adults 18 to 45. 
suicide rates have been increasing, especially problematic in teenagers. And since the pandemic began, mental health has become a problem really in the way that our entire country struggled with mental health issues, met people who never even realized what mental health is, it became a part of our everyday lives. Collectively as a country, we've gone through many traumatic events as over the last two years. And it's been something that we've realized touches each of us as individuals, as members of a family, members of a community and our society. Now, in addition to you know, the kind of diseases that have come about, we have really rampant issues around massive stress, burnout, and loneliness. At the same time, what is really important to think about is that there's been a tremendous silver lining over the last two years. And what that has been is a reduction in stigma. If we think about the way that mental health was talked about just two years ago, and the discussions that we're having today, it really feels like a different world. The number of people who are out and about sharing their own stories and struggles of mental health, the way that in schools, in families, and in the media, the way that mental health is talked about, it's now so much more open and honest, and we're finally able to have the conversation that I think many people have been waiting entire lifetimes to have. And that's what's exactly what we wanted to be able to do today. We want to talk about our personal experiences with mental health. We want to talk about how since the pandemic started, how mental health has changed and think about how it's affected all of us in the Coca-Cola scholars community, issues that have been kind of unique to us as you know, very high achieving students and young professionals, things like imposter syndrome that are very common in communities like ours. As well as really importantly, we want to talk about the very practical aspects, things like resources that we can go to if you are struggling or a loved one is struggling with their mental health, or not even struggling, but even to think about this from a proactive perspective, what you can do to keep yourself well and healthy. So that's the conversation that we want to have here today. And we have fantastic scholars here who are going to share their perspective, their personal and, and professional expertise and really try to set the tone for the new open culture that we have around mental health. And I think that just like Coca-Cola Scholars is all about leadership, we want to, as leaders, set the, set the tone for how we want to see mental health talked about in our society today, starting with our conversation here today. So um, I'm going to introduce myself. Hi, everyone. I'm Nina Vossen. I'm a 2002 Coca-Cola scholar. I grew up in a small town, Vienna, West Virginia. I now split my time between Palo Alto, California and New York City. And a little uh, professional overview of me. I'm a an adult, adult psychiatrist by training. Um, I have uh, sort of two, two different hats. I I'm a professor at Stanford where I run a lab called Brainstorm, which is Stanford's lab for mental health innovation, focused on technology and building technology products and mental health. And then I'm the chief medical officer of a mental health startup called Real. And um, I think uh, I'll also add very, very, um, I would say even more relevant personal background about myself. In fact, on my LinkedIn, the first thing I share about myself is my own uh, experience 
background with mental health, which is that I've struggled with uh, social anxiety and anxiety pretty much since I was a teenager, um, as well as had depression while I was in medical school. And uh, we call that lived experience. That's sort of the technical term in the mental health community for someone who's had mental health issues themselves. And I really want to bring both that personal and professional experience to our conversation here today. A uh, little fun fact about me. If, um, I, when I was a Coke scholar, I remember we had a little uh, yearbook and I shared my love of Coke in that yearbook and that continues. And so I was just going to share my, my love, love of Coke right now, which is that Dasani is still my kind of go-to go Coke product of the day. But I have now recently discovered Sprite Zero Sugar. And it was my dear friend, Coca-Cola scholar, Mackenzie Lowry, who introduced it to me. And so this is really, I think, a testament to the Coke community of, of how we are not only all together, but still sharing in the, the wonder that Coke brings into our lives. So that is me. I am going to turn it over to my dear friend and wonderful colleague and someone who's inspired me personally and professionally for many years, Robert. Thank you, Nina. It's a it's a pleasure to uh, to be with you all, Nina, Chris, and Diana, fellow Princeton alum, and all fellow Coca Cola scholars alumni. Um, but Nina, it's a it's a privilege. I, I have I have been in the chair being moderated by a panel uh, by Nina before, so it's a pleasure to be back in the virtual arena with you. Um, so I, like Nina, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, so pediatric and adult um, psychiatrist. Uh, have the privilege of continuing to care for patients uh, and teach medical students at Harvard Med School and supervise residents at Mass General where I'm on faculty. And um, I, my full-time job is working as a chief medical officer of a healthcare technology company called OnTrack Health um, that works with patients uh, with a high degree of co-occurring physical, mental, and social uh, care needs. Um, and uh, we support them uh, and help them, uh, provide them with uh, mental health treatment uh, in, the contact, in the context of uh, their uh, uh, fragility uh, and, and having uh, multiple um, medical needs. Um, so I am, I'm just so excited to talk to you all today about this very, very important near and important topic near and dear to my heart um, and um, ha have really focused my energies now in the private sector, but previously in the public sector, um, uh, doing work around paths to equitable uh, access to mental health services uh, that we need. And as, as Nina already said, we didn't need this pandemic. We had a mental health crisis prior to this pandemic. Um, and now there's even more need um, in the context of, of the last two very challenging years for everyone. Um, not only those of, with diagnosed mental health conditions, but I think everyone has, has struggled uh, in, in different ways uh, during these last two years. So it's a, a privilege to, to be with you all today. Let's turn it over to your fellow Princetonian, Diana. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. And it's my honor and pleasure to be joining such a wonderful group of people today. And I'm looking forward to learning from you all. So hi, I am Diana Chow. I am a 2016 scholar from California and I graduated last year, 2021 from Princeton. So 
uh, Zoom University folks, I got you. Uh, I hear you. I've been there. <laughs> so uh, I am participating in this panel today as the founder and executive director of Letters to Strangers which is the largest global youth for youth mental health nonprofit. We serve directly over 35,000 people every year and hundreds of thousands more indirectly with artwork, including the world's first youth for youth mental health guidebook and a supplementary teacher's mental health curriculum guide. My own uh, interest and passion in mental health began when I was 13 um, as a first generation immigrant and also college student who was growing up beneath the poverty line with parents who didn't speak English. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I survived a series of attempts to take my own life. And it was um, after those experiences, including about in which I um, had, I experienced psychosomatic blindness where I got an eye disease and nobody could figure out what was causing it. Um, but I went blind for about half of high school um, that it really uh, made me realize how, even though today we are talking about mental health more and more, there is still a lot of barriers and stigma, especially with communities of color and other marginalized communities. Um, so it's uh, my joy and, and honor to be able to at the very least start to um, push away at those barriers a little bit with everyone today. And passing on to Chris. Hey guys, my name's Chris Bean and I'm a 2014 Coke Scholar. I grew up in Medford Lakes, New Jersey and I now live in Medford, New Jersey. So just a, a stone's throw away. And I um, live with bipolar disorder. And so that's been something that I've experienced mental health treatment for the last 12 years and have seen incredible doctors have been seen, experienced incredible treatment options um, throughout that experience. And I currently am a freelancer and writer. Uh, fun fact is I'm working on a book. It's called Raging Seas and Rising Suns. And I write a lot about my experience with mental health. And so that's a very raw, real, vulnerable um, platform to express some of the depths of depression that I've experienced. And I've actually had um, multiple medical leaves of absences from college to deal with mental health and to get treatment and to focus on recovering from depression. So I definitely think that this conversation is near and dear to my heart. And it is really a privilege to be here. That is wonderful. Thank you, Chris. And we'll be very excited to get to read that book when, when that comes out. And Diana, thank you so much for your work. What a tremendous organization. And we'll, we'll hear more about everything, everything shortly. So I think to kick it off, first question is, would love to hear everyone's kind of initial thoughts on how has mental health shown up in the pandemic for you? What changed or what's been kind of the biggest, maybe biggest takeaway for you um, from, you know, pandemic times, mental health equals. Um, and I'll, I'll start off. Uh, I think for me, the, you know, we've all had big changes in the way that I think I've, as the pandemic has led to us reflecting on, on life, on the way that we live, on, you know, what work looks like, on so many things. And I think for me, what really came about was recognizing my own kind of lack of self-care something that has been something we've certainly talked about in the news a lot. And, you know, as a psychiatrist, I tell all my patients so many things to do about their own, you know, wellness and well-being. and really realized probably about a year into the pandemic that I was having immense anxiety, um, just not like working you know, almost, you know, like a hundred hours a week and just not taking care of myself at all. And it was um, re really the pandemic that helped helped me realize that um, I needed to really make some very, very serious changes to how I was living. And I think, you know, thinking about even going back to high school where, when we all met, that kind of um, 
drive to do more professionally has kind of, you know, been a part of life for a long time and been very, very, very purposeful and meaningful, especially working in a field like mental health. At the same time, it was finally, I think, taking a toll on my own health and well-being. And so that's been a big change that I've made has been um, really, I, I think, similar to what you were talking about, Chris, uh, taking time uh, off of work, uh, taking, for me, I took my first leave actually from work, medical leave um, for a couple months and really just tried to work on my own mental health. Um, And that's, I think, hopefully, you know, a change to make now as I sort of reset and figure out for my adult life, how to find a better balance where health is, health is uh, at the top. I'm happy to, good thing this will be edited. I'm happy to (laughs) (laughs) Um, First of all, to say, I, I just want to thank Chris and Diana for their, and Nina, for um, your openness about, you know, struggles with mental health conditions. It's, um, it is a new day, but there's still so many barriers to, you know, our own barriers and external barriers to receiving the care we need. So it takes courage to be so open and to, uh, you know, to have a medical condition that then inspires uh, work that that impacts others in such a positive way is, is truly inspiring. So thank you. Um, and uh, it's an honor to be in your Coca-Cola Scholars family and on this podcast with you. Um, so for me, uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, I, I think, um, so everything went um, virtual uh, at work. And um, I was working at a healthcare technology company where we would collaborate and work together um, every day, physically together. And I would see patients in clinic um, and everything went virtual overnight. Now, privileged to be in the position where that was possible to work virtually and, and certainly sensitive to those, you know, um, working in hospitals and, uh, you know, those on the front lines of this horrible pandemic and um, essential workers who couldn't work remotely. So I don't take that for granted, but the impact of those of us who I think it was there were different sorts of struggles depending on what uh, sorts of work challenges you faced. And I think, you know, as Nina alluded to, there just was this lack of boundary between work and your life. It could sort of creep at work, could creep into all hours of the day. When you live in New York and you live in small spaces, it's sort of, um, you know, cramped of, of having, you know, we, we, we don't typically move into apartments in New York expecting to do everything out of them. Um, so it's just as, as is true of many cities in this country. So, you know, having separate work space um, and living space, it has a huge impact on your, you know, day-to-day mental health um, and ability to thrive. And I, I, you know, what I found with friends, with family, with patients, it was like, if you asked it, if people were thriving during that time, very, very few answered yes to that question, not only surviving, but also just thriving. It was, it was a challenge. And then of course, the impact of isolation and being away from family for so long. And if you're, you know, you're plane flight away from family you would typically see that just, that weighs heavily on you and, you know, traditions that couldn't happen as we typically have them and, and so on and so forth. And you know we're we're not out of this pandemic yet. We're, it still remains to be seen from a public health standpoint and emerging variants. Sort of where this all shakes out, I think we're still reminded of it every day. Though we're not on lockdown, you know we're we're not. This is this is not in the rearview mirror yet, sadly. Um, and um, so it, it it was I think a harrowing time. I found with patient care those who um, had 
a recent life change in proximity to COVID. They weren't sort of set up at home and had to change. Um, or those with an underlying mental health condition, me mental illness, um, were most impacted in terms of the psychological impacts of COVID. But I think this impacted everyone in different ways. And um, it's it's been a harrowing two years. Yeah, and off of that, Robert, so I saw a CDC, a CDC study that said that stress symptoms doubled um, from pre and during the pandemic. And I know that my stress increased because my mom, she's immunocompromised. And so just the thought of her getting COVID was a really big concern for my family. So we took a lot of preventative measures to go above and beyond to limit the exposure as much as we possibly could. So I think that the question, am I doing everything in my power was something that came up a lot during the pandemic. And it's, it's still something that we consider because we want to be really careful with my mom. So I think stress has definitely been an increase for me during the pandemic. And that affects other aspects of mental health as well. For sure. And, you know, on that note, um, the whole process of going virtual, even when one is in that uh, one, it has that ability to stay at home. There's a lot of fears that can happen at home as well. You know, people who had to return to places where they were abused um, or um, be more prone to those, you know, trigger factors and such. And that's something that I know that I and also a lot of the people I work with experienced. And you also have, especially from a youth and young adult perspective, you know, as people are sort of turning more towards online activities to try to find that connection somewhere with someone else, you will get an increase in, for example, body image issues because people are just on social media all the time and posting all these things and you're not sure uh, what's real and what's not real anymore because you don't have a real life, you know, way to judge things because you're not going outside. You're not seeing people in real life. And, um, you know, the, the talk about increasing in discussions of self-care and all that has certainly been a huge component as well during the pandemic. Um, but of course, one thing that we see when these topics get accelerated through the social media stratosphere is that usually they're not followed up with education and um, perhaps more nuanced uh, care and such. And so what ends up happening is a lot of these hashtags and perhaps more surface level strategies for self-care become condensed into this idea of take a bubble bath and everything will be okay. And there's so much more to that, right? And it's, I'm sure you've had situations, especially back maybe when you were in school where as super high achieving students, you might end up um, feeling like you're competing with one another about, let's say, oh, I only had, I could only sleep this much because I was working so hard. And then other person's like, oh, well, I could only sleep this much. But like we saw that getting accelerated to the mental health sphere as well. It was already happening before the pandemic, but then comparing each other's pain became an issue where um, we have younger folks are hearing about these terms, not really knowing what they're meaning, but knowing that they're important um, and perhaps feeling like they have to take extreme measures to be taken seriously in the context of those terms. And so this is something that uh, my organization, I myself have seen um, just countlessly, but especially during the pandemic. Diana, you know, I, you talked so much about social media and I actually wanna bring up a question from a 2013 scholar, Taylor, who asks, cyber harassment can aggravate existing mental health concerns. How can companies step in to mitigate risk around illegal online behaviors? I'm gonna actually pause and maybe add a little to this of even just as we think about the context of 
over the last two years, you know, we all, even before the pandemic, we were spending many, many hours online. Of course, that, you know, went up many fold as literally we're all just living our lives online over the last two years now. And so if we think about the negative things like this, like the Facebook whistleblower case of seeing that, you know, there's more um, body image and eating disorder content and, and concerns in terms of spending time online. We know that for uh, kids and teens, certain in terms of certain behaviors they have online, it can increase risk of suicide, self-harm. And then of course here, the, you know, Taylor's question around cyber harassment would love, um, would love Diana, uh, maybe if you want to kick it off with thoughts around, around Taylor's question. Yeah, for sure. You know, when it comes to institutions or companies, um, there is a little bit of difficulty in that there's a lot of fear of what happens if I tell someone what I've seen. And I know that a lot of times people don't seek help from their employers or from their schools because they are afraid of, uh, because the policies are not transparent. And so that uncertainty leads to fear. And in fact, sometimes you'll hear stories of people being forced to go on leaves of absence against their will and such, um, or, um, you know, being forced to like take on a huge medical debt due to, uh, due to circumstances that their school or maybe even their employer imposed upon them because they got scared of their mental health being a liability. And so this is something to keep in mind. I think for co companies and institutions, if they're able to be more transparent in, for example, the reporting process, uh, where that information would go towards who would know it, if it's anonymous or not, um, having like these forms, perhaps anonymous that people can submit to, but more importantly, you know, being proactive instead of reactive. So instead of only trying to solve things once they've happened, invest in having these mental health uh, communication education sessions, invest in mental health resources for employees. Um, and when it comes to just any one of us being willing to check in with each other and ourselves, even if it um, seems like it's a little bit of an extra effort, or maybe they are just joking about feeling down or something, but just taking that one step to checking can really make a difference. Thank you, Diana. That was really thorough and appreciate, appreciate that. Let me go to the next question from Shanae, a 2021 scholar. As a first generation low income student in college, what are strategies to best cope with imposter syndrome as a pre-med student? And I'll, I'll know, knowing that I think this is something that many people are, are likely struggling with, I'll even go beyond and kind of imposter syndrome for, for anyone, um, pre-med or, or other, you know, other topics of study as well. I mean, imposter syndrome is something that I think will follow us throughout the rest of our lives. It's not like a prison sentence by any means, um, but something that will come up and up again, just because we're always going to be encountering new things, um, hopefully, you know, as we experience life. So one big thing is to remember that there are things you are good at. And maybe that means you have to write down notes of affirmation to yourself, or maybe it means that um, you can do a friend group exercise where you guys write things that you feel are very good qualities in each other. And you hold on to those notes for revisiting when you're feeling down and such, and just giving yourself a reminder of the things that you do have control over of the places where you have excelled um, in those moments where you're not feeling quite so confident in yourself. And of course, we don't want to tie our worth to our accomplishments in the sense that, oh, you have to feel like you've accomplished something in the past in order to feel okay with where you are at now. But that is a first step just because it's hard to completely eradicate that feeling of 
I need to feel like I'm doing something worthwhile. But once you get past that step, I think the key thing to remember is that life is so unpredictable, right? And so what might seem like a huge failure or, you know, something that really hurts you today might be something that will end up uh, accidentally catalyzing a great change in your life. And it's really hard to think about things in that perspective in the moment. But if you challenge yourself to think about past situations where those unexpected changes have turned out for good, maybe it could be a reminder to yourself that that mindset can lead to um, reality as well. I hope that made sense. Diana, that was beautiful. I, we need to recruit you into the mental health profession as someone who <laughs> delivers care to patients because that was, I want you to be my therapist after hearing that answer. That was fabulous. <laughs> I'll, I'll share a, a couple things. One is that, you know, imposter syndrome is something that I, I remember actually not as not necessarily feeling so much while we were in high school, you know, around Coca-Cola Scholars time, but actually probably starting a little bit afterwards, maybe in college, maybe in, in college, and actually continued very much for maybe the next like 10 years or so. And only recently, um, finally, I think I'm at a place, I'm, I'm 38 now, you know, finished, I finished medical school, business school, you know, faculty, and probably only because when I became faculty, finally sort of had the sense of like, oh, maybe I kind of know what I'm doing now. Um, I, I think medicine, actually, I know, uh, I know, Shanae, you mentioned being a pre-med student. I do think medicine as a field, certainly um, doesn't do anything to make imposter syndrome better. Let's put it that way. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that can be really, really, really difficult and frustrating. Um, and, and the first thing actually I want to say about this is that I, when I was at, at Stanford for residency, I did, I spent some time in Stanford Student Health Center. And so as a result of that, for about a year, almost all my patients were different Stanford students, undergrads, grad students. And one of the things that was really surprising to me was how many of those students came in talking about imposter syndrome. And it was something that when I thought about my own experience in college, while my friends and I were very open about a lot of things and talked about so much, I don't think I had appreciated how much imposter syndrome was an issue for us. And then being on the side of being a psychiatrist and hearing everyone talk about their issues, I, I had, I, you know, it was like, wow, so many people at this institution are really struggling, yet no one is talking to anyone else about it. And so I think much like mental health, you know, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, one of the things that really categorizes mental health, I think, is just feeling so isolated in the experience. Imposter syndrome, I think, unfortunately, is quite a bit of the same, is that you think you're the only one who doesn't feel like you know what you're doing, but that everyone else totally knows what they're doing. And, you know, you're, you're the exception. And, and I think that the reality is that if you start a conversation what you realize is that many, many people around you are feeling the same way, if not even at times the majority of people around you. Now, does that make it better or worse? Some, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I, I think for a lot of people realizing I'm not the only one does actually make it a little bit better. At the same time, it's still something you have to deal with. So to answer your question today about strategies, I, I do think something that like Diana was saying, a lot of times we think that just having something that you realize you are good at and kind of focusing on some of those positive things like, oh, I did a good job of this, can actually start to help change your mindset around I'm not good enough or, or even kind of reframing things like, you know, there certainly are things that you 
have yet to learn, but really thinking about what is it that you do know now and looking at like where you are today compared to two years ago, right? Where you're only focusing on you compare, you're comparing yourself to yourself and your past and not comparing yourself to anyone else or, or even necessarily where you're, you're going to be in five years. Um, so I guess number one, you know, talk about it more openly and, uh, and kind of focusing on your, your strengths and, um, accomplishments can certainly be helpful in that way. Okay, let's go on to our next question. Our next question is from Brooke, who's a 2020 scholar, 2020, the year that we will remember for the rest of our lives. Um, what should you do if you see a close friend that is quietly struggling? How do you initiate these difficult conversations and what action steps should you take? Is helping them seek professional help always the best step? You know, for that one, if I was that close friend who was struggling, what I would love for my friend to do for me is to approach me one on one and just express that, hey, I really care about you. And it looks like you might be struggling. How are you doing? Would you want to talk? Something so simple like that. That's just an invitation to go a little deeper. And then I could respond. Maybe that is actually I'm doing OK. Or maybe it's like, wow, you noticed you, you were thoughtful enough to check in on me. And I'm actually really hurting and would love someone to listen. And I think that listening is one of the best ways you can love someone. And so just being available to talk is huge. Um, and then, of course, if that person's receptive to that, then you can walk them through and guide them to professional next steps, because I think that's so important. And I also think there's so many ways that friends could be intentional with other friends who might be struggling if they choose not to pursue the professional help or if they're not ready yet. And so I think you have to really respect the person's choice to see where they're at. Um, but there's so many ways that you can be checking in, that you can be going on a walk with that person, that you can give them a hug, that you can just say like, hey, man, I, I know you're really struggling. Thanks for sharing that. That was really vulnerable. And I just want to let you know that I'm here for you because those those intimate connections are so important when there's vulnerability at stake. I think that's fantastic. And and Robert, knowing your training as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on in particular thinking about, you know, folks who might be parents thinking about how do I talk to my kid? Um, you know, are there any things in addition to what Chris said, anything that may be useful for a little bit of a younger demographic in terms of, you know, how to ask someone if they're struggling or what some initial initial steps might be? Yeah, I, I loved what Chris had to say. I mean, I, I think so much of it, it's, it's, it's the same sort of principle of showing that you care and making these difficult topics talk aboutable. We talk about that in child psychiatry all the time of sort of expressing your feeling through feelings through words or if developmentally not appropriate to, um, to speak about your feelings through play um, uh, and, and just creating a safe space where, um, where people know that they will be heard and listened to. And then sort of, if there needs to be professional support, you know, triage to that right type of care, but first, you know, creating a listening space where you're not just like picking up the phone and, you know, calling for help. I think so much as Chris just taught us is about, you know, just listening and making time for um, uh, leaning into difficult conversations. Absolutely love that. I will add a little little uh, carrot to that. What, what was that? Let's edit that one out. <laughs> love that. Um, 
to get to the final part of that around is seeking professional help always the best step. You know, I think what I would say there is it's never a wrong step, never a bad step for sure. And thinking about a lot of questions that I know as a psychiatrist, I always get asked is how do I know I need to, how do I know when it's time to seek professional help versus is this something that I can deal with myself, for example. And I think that it's one of those things where, you know, if you're worried about it, it's always a good thing to go to a professional, you know, maybe they say, actually, you're, you're doing well. And here are some, here are some resources for you. Or maybe they realize that, you know, it, it looks like you have a diagnosis and here's treatment that can get started. Well, one of the statistics that I think is incredibly startling when it comes to mental health um, or healthcare period is that when we look at when someone first experiences a symptom of mental health to when they actually seek a professional medical treatment, that length of time, and I'll give a little uh, comparison. If we think about something like, let's say you had a stomach ache or a headache and it's not going away, how long would you take to get help? Most people would say a few hours, maybe a few days, maximum of like a week or so. When it comes to something of like mental health, but it's depression or you're not sleeping or stress or anxiety, the average amount of time in the US is 11 years. So that's an incredibly, incredibly long time. So anything we can do to encourage people to seek help sooner, we, ha- we absolutely have to do. Um, so again, I'll just go back to, if you think that there might be something going on, it's not gonna hurt to, seek, to see a professional. Um, and uh, it, whether that's you or, or a loved one, for sure. Um, and then the final thing I would just add to that is uh, something that I've certainly seen that can help the conversation is really just normalizing it. Um, and even saying, you know, this is something I've struggled with, or this is something a loved one, you know, my, my mom struggled with worsening anxiety. You know, I've noticed, I've noticed that you haven't been showing up, you know, you've been coming towards Zoom meetings late and that's not like you, you know, I noticed you, you were never like that a year ago. Is there anything going on or, you know, kind of like, uh, both making it safe that this is something that you've seen and that you, you know, know. And so it kind of makes it easier for that person to say like, oh yes, you know, it is something. And and maybe helping them see that um, kind of what what you're seeing that that's concerning for them. I just wanted to say that if you do have that conversation where you bring up that you or someone else in your life have had a a similar diagnosis or something like that, um, just make it clear that your perspective is not coming from you are now seeing this person to be um, going through the exact same things as that other person because everyone's journey is different. And it can feel quite suffocating sometimes or dismissive if it feels like, oh, this person just sees me as an archetype of this illness instead of like me on my own journey. And so that sort of is like my whole approach to this is I always tell people, you, you have to remember your job is not to be the knight in shining armor. Your role is not to solve those people's problems for them. Oftentimes people who are in pain feel especially terrible because it feels like you're losing control of yourself, your life, your autonomy. And so reminding them of their own ability, their own capabilities and seeing them as the people they are is more important than telling them what you think they should do to fix themselves because that can oftentimes come across as the opposite of what they need. And so that also means recognizing that seeking professional help does not equate to only seeking cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. Because I think a lot of times people nowadays equate seeking help to getting talk therapy 
therapy in that sense. But maybe there's different types of therapy that is a better fit for that person. Maybe what they need is community healing and support. You know, a lot of different ways to explore seeking professional treatment outside of what might be the first thing to come to mind. So certainly familiarizing ourselves with those different options can be really helpful as well. That is, that is perfect. And I think that leads us to our final, our, our final part of the discussion, which is resources. So, you know, what are great resources that you have found and you might recommend to others in terms of what's been helpful from a mental health perspective? And Diana, I think you, you started on some, some great, great recommendations there. Uh, yeah, I'll just say Letters to Strangers has plenty of resources, and they're always all free. So, you know, letterstostrangers.org, check out the guidebook, many healing, strategy, healing strategies and intergenerational, uh, multicultural, different identity backgrounds to be explored in there as well. I found Brene Brown's work to be such a useful resource, and she has a podcast, Unlocking Us. She's got a podcast, Dare to Lead. And there's actually an episode on imposter syndrome on Dare to Lead podcast with Brene Brown. So I think that her material has just really helped me um, be more wholehearted and, and definitely explore different emotions and mental health topics. And um, yeah, I would plug her. Mine are uh, related both to physician memoir of experience, like Pauline Chen's final exam, and patient memoirs of experience, um, like uh, the center cannot hold as one example of many wonderful examples by uh, Ellen Sachs. Very beautiful. And I'll, I'll share our, uh, finally, um, uh, the company I work with is uh, called Real. And uh, actually what Diana was talking about, uh, you know, therapy is one resource that's kind of a, one of the most common things that we think about. What we're doing is thinking about for those who are not doing one-on-one -on -one therapy, what are all the other kind of resources that you can go to? And so we have a um, membership model. It's about, about $15 a month for um, sort of like Peloton for mental health, where you can think about specific issues that you're struggling with, like relationship issues or body image or um, or, you know, understanding your anxiety or your feelings and kind of have a very specific class and um, experience around uh, how to improve your mental health. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll th throw that out there to people. It's uh, join-real.com. And um, finally, you know, I think that knowing we have uh, students and, and professionals in our community, I really do think that uh, thinking through what is the role that your employer can play in helping with mental health um, is also really important. So definitely would encourage people to uh, go to your employer and understand, you know, what are the resources that, they are, that are there, um, everything from your understanding your health insurance benefits um, through what are other programs that are sponsored. And, and of course, the, uh, you know, thinking about community, thinking about just the daily things that are so important for improving health, like sleep, like exercise, mindfulness, gratitude, time in nature, community, all of those things that are um, so, so, such as part of our daily life that the more we can infuse a, even a little, a few minutes throughout the day, make a really big difference. So thank you everyone for our discussion on mental health. And, um, you know, we'd love to certainly follow up if anyone has questions, definitely, you know, reach out to us through the, the Koch Scholar um, community and network. Um, and now I think it's time for our fast five. So here's what we're gonna do. We have five questions. Uh, we have five questions and I'll start with the first question. What are two apps or websites you can't live without? I will start, I'm gonna say for me, it's 
Audible because I love doing audiobooks and Giphy because I love sending gifts to people and they make me very happy. They bring great joy to my life. Schitt's Creek is my favorite type of one to send. <laughs> Mine would be um, uh, the New York Times website um, and um, the to-do list app. Mine are YouTube and Crunchyroll. Mine are Spotify and Day One Journal. Beautiful. Next question. If I looked at the music on your iPhone or iPod right now, what would most surprise me? Mine is that it's April, but Christmas music is still at the top of the list. I don't know if this would surprise you, Nina. I don't think any of it would surprise you, to be honest. But mine is just like very, very eclectic, but with a focus on the American music. Love my that. Friends, my friends introduced me to math rock or something like that recently, and it's not necessarily my cup of tea, but it's there. The average person would be shocked at how much I love Coldplay. So that's that. Fabulous. Okay, next. Favorite book or piece of music or art that has helped or inspired you in your life? Mine would be Raphael's School of Athens, which was a gift from my dad. It was in my Coca-Cola Scholars application when I was in high school, and it's still true. Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go. Any, really, of the fantasy novels I read when I was a teenager. Ludovico in Naughty. He has the most beautiful instrumentals. Number four, what quote or motto do you live your life by? I would say live my life by it, but something that I have really gone back to many times over the last few years is a quote from Oprah herself, which is whenever she's struggling with something, she asks herself the question, what is this here to teach me? This, this is a beautiful quote. It is not possible to do great things in the world, only small things with great love. Mother Teresa. And this quote by Stephen Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George. White, a blank page or canvas. His favorite, so many possibilities. This is my personal motto and the motto of Letters to Strangers. Writing is humanity distilled into ink. I love that. There's a quote that's really relevant to our conversation. It's be who you are and say what you feel because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. And that's by Bernard Baruch. Beautiful. And our last question, what makes the Koch Scholars program or network unique? And I will say community. And I think by that, it's the only program where I've made more friends after the program than during. Yeah, it, I would second that. It's, and it's an, ex, it's an extraordinary community of extraordinary diversity and service orientation and, and shared purpose. Um, which is just very, very special. It's an honor to be a part of it. All of the above plus the importance of memories. 
Yes, and I would echo all of that and just emphasize the meaningful connection of the Coca-Cola Scholars Network. That's what it's all about. Community, memory, connection. Thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the fourth episode of Season 3 of The Sip, featuring Dr. Robert Acordino, Chris Bean, Diana Chow, and Dr. Nina Vassen. To read their full bios and learn more about the resources and sites that they discussed, check out our show notes or visit coca-colascholarsfoundation.org. And if you have an extra minute, we would love for you to rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe so you'll be the first to receive new episodes. Check back next week when scholars Brandon Carde-Hernandez, Pega Taylor, and Star Wallen will discuss reimagining schools. See you next time on The Sixth.